Storming the Cosmos by Rudy Rucker and Bruce Sterling, read by Bruce Sterling. I first met Vlad Zipkin at a Moscow beatnik party in the glorious winter of 1957. I went there as a KGB informer. Because of my report on that first meeting, poor Vlad had to spend six months in a mental hospital. Not that he wasn't crazy. As a boy, I often tattled on wrongdoers, but I certainly didn't plan to grow up to be a professional informer. It just worked out that way. The turning point was in the spring of 1953, when I failed my completion exams at the All-Union Metallurgical Institute. I'd been working toward those exams for years. I wanted to help build the rockets that would launch us into the infinite. And then suddenly, one day in April, it was all over. Our examination grades were posted, and I was one of the three in 17 who'd failed. To take the exam again, I'd have to wait a whole year. First, I was depressed, then angry. I knew for a fact that four of the students with good grades had cheated. I, who was honest, had failed, and they, who had cheated, had passed. It wasn't fair. It wasn't communist. I went and told the head of the institute. The upshot was that I passed after all and became an assistant metallurgical engineer at the Kaliningrad Space Center. But in reality, my main duty was to make weekly reports to the KGB on what my co-workers thought and said and did. I was, frankly, grateful to have my KGB work to do, as most of the metallurgical work was a bit beyond me. There was an ugly Russian word for informer, stukach, snitch. The criminals, the psychotics, the parasites, and the beatniks. To them, I was a stukach. But without Stukachi, our communist society would explode into anarchy or grind to a decadent halt. Vlad Zipkin might be a genius, and I might be a Stukach, but society needed us both. I first met Vlad at a party thrown by a girl called Liuda. Liuda had her own Moscow apartment. Her father was a Red Army Colonel General in Kaliningrad. She was a nice, sexy girl who looked a little like Doris Day. Liuda and her friends were all beatniks. They drank a lot, they used English slang, they listened to jazz, and the men hung around with prostitutes. One of the guys got Liuda pregnant, and she went for an abortion. She had VD as well. We heard of this, of course. Word spreads about these matters. Someone in higher circles decided to eliminate the antisocial sex gangster responsible for this. It was my job to find out who he was. It was a matter for Space Center KGB because several rocket scientists were known to be in Liuda's orbit. My approach was cagey. I made contact with a prostitute named Trina who hung around the Metropol, the Moskva, and other foreign hotels. Trina had chic Western clothes from her customers, and she was friends with many of the Moscow beatniks. I'm certainly not 
dashing enough to charm a girl like Trina. Instead, I simply told her that I was KGB and that if she didn't get me into one of Liuta's bashes, I'd have her arrested. Liuta's pad was jammed when we got there. I was proud to show up with a cool chick like Trina on my arm. I looked very sharp, too, with the leather jacket and the black stovepipe pants with no cuffs that all the beatniks were wearing that season. Trina stuck right with me, as we'd planned, and lots of men came up to talk to us. Trina would get them to talking dirty, and then I'd make some remark about Liuda, ending with, but I guess she has a boyfriend? The problem was that she had lots of them. I kept having to go into the bathroom to write down more names. Somehow, I had to decide on one particular guy. Time went on, and I got tenser. Cigarette smoke filled the room. The bathroom was jammed, and I had to wait. When I came back, I saw Trina with a hardcore beatnik named Starsky. He got her attention with some garbled Americanisms. Hey, baby, let's jive down to Hollywood and drink cool scotch. I love making it with gone broads like you and Luda. He showed her a wad of hard currency, dollars he had illegally bought from tourists. I decided on the spot that Starsky was my man and told Trina to leave with him and find out where he lived. Now that I'd finished my investigation, I could relax and enjoy myself. I got a bottle of vodka and sat down by Liuta's Steinway piano. Some guy in sunglasses was playing a slow boogie-woogie. It was lovely. Lovely enough to move me to tears. Tears for Liuta's corrupted beauty. Tears for my lost childhood. Tears for my mother's grave. A sharp poke in the thigh interrupted my reverie. Quit bawling, fatso. This isn't the Ukraine. The voice came from beneath the piano. Leaning down, I saw a man sitting cross-legged there, a thin, blonde man with pale eyes. He smiled and showed his bad teeth. Cheer up, pal. I mean it. And pass me that vodka bottle you're sucking. My name's Vlad Zipkin. I passed him my bottle. I'm Nikita Yosifovich Globoff. Nice shoes, Vlad said admiringly. Cool jacket, too. You're a snappy dresser for a rocket type. What makes you think I'm from the Space Center, I said. Vlad lowered his voice. The shoes. You got those from Nikidzi, the Kazakh, the black market guy. He's been selling them all over Kaliningrad. I climbed under the piano with Zipkin. The air was a little clearer there. You're one of us, Comrade Zipkin? I do information theory, Zipkin whispered, drunkenly touching one finger to his lips. We're designing error-proof codes for communicating with the... You know. He made a little orbiting movement with his forefinger and looked upward at the shiny, dark bottom of the piano. The Sputnik had only been up since October. We space workers were still not used to talking about it in public. Come on, don't be shy, I said, smiling. We can say Sputnik, can't we? Everyone in the world has talked of nothing else for months. It was easy to draw Vlad out. My group's hush-hush, he bragged criminally. 
The top brass think information theory has to be classified and censored. But the theory's not information itself. It's an abstract meta-information, he burbled on for a while. In the weird jargon of his profession, I grew bored and opened a pack of Kent cigarettes. Vlad bummed one instantly. He was impressed that I had American cigarettes. Only cool black market operators had classy cigs like that. Vlad felt the need to impress me in return. Khrushchev wants the next Sputnik to broadcast propaganda, he confided, blowing smoke. The Internationale, in outer space. What foolishness, Vlad shook his head, as if countries matter anymore outside our atmosphere. To any real Russian, it is already clear that we have surpassed the Americans. Why should we copy their fascist nationalism? We have soared into the void and left them in the dirt. He grinned. Damn, these are good spokes. Can you get me a connection? What are you offering, I said. He nodded at Luda. See our hostess? You see those earrings she has? They're gold-plated transistors I stole from the center. All property is theft, eh, Nikita? I liked Vlad well enough, but I felt duty-bound to report his questionable attitudes, along with my information about Starsky. Political deviance such as Vlad's is a type of mental illness. I liked Vlad enough to truly want to see him get better. Having made my report, I returned to Kaliningrad and forgot about Vlad. I didn't hear about him for a month. Since the early 50s, Kaliningrad had been the home of the Soviet space effort. Kaliningrad was 30 kilometers north of Moscow and had once been a summer resort. There, we worked heroically at rocket research and construction, though the actual launches took place at the famous Baikonur Cosmodrome far to the south. I enjoyed life in Kaliningrad. The stores were crammed with Polish hams and fresh lamb chops, and the landscape of forests and lakes was romantic and pleasant. Security was excellent. Outside the research complex and block apartments were dachas, resort homes for space scientists, engineers, and party officials, including our top boss, the chief designer himself. The entire compound was surrounded by a high wood and concrete fence manned around the clock by armed guards. It was very peaceful. The compound held almost 50 dachas. I owned a small one, a kitchen, and two rooms, with a large garden filled with fruit trees and berry bushes, now covered by winter snow. A month after Lyuda's party, I was enjoying myself in my dacha, quietly pressing a new suit I had bought from Nokidzi, the Kazakh, when I heard a black Zil sedan splash out through the mud outside. I peeked through the curtains. A woman stamped up the path and knocked. I opened the door slightly. Nikita Yosefovich Globov? Yes. Let me in, you fat sneak, she said. I gaped at her. She addressed me with filthy words, shocked, I let her in. She was a dusky, strong-featured Tartar woman, dressed in a cheap black two-piece suit from the Moscow GUM store. No woman in Kaliningrad wore clothes or shoes that ugly unless she was a real hard liner. So I got worried. She kicked the door shut and glared at me. 
You turned in Vladimir Zipkin. What? Listen, you meddling idiot. I'm Captain Bogolyabova from Information Mechanics. You've put my best worker into the mental hospital. What were you thinking? Do you realize what this will do to my production schedules? I was caught off guard. I babbled something about proper ideology coming first. You louse, she snarled. It's my department and I handle security there. How dare you report one of my people without coming to me first? Do you see me turning in metallurgists? Well, you can't have him babbling state secrets to every beatnik in Moscow, I said defensively. You forget yourself, said Captain Bogolyabova with a taut smile. I have a rank in KGB and you are a common stukach. I can make a great deal of trouble for you, a very great deal. I began to sweat. I was doing my duty. No one could deny that. Besides, I didn't know he was in the hospital. All he needed was a few counseling sessions. You fouled up everything, she said, staring at me through slitted eyes like a Cossack sizing up a captured hog. She crossed her arms over her hefty chest and looked around my dacha. This little place of yours will be nice for Vlad. He'll need some rest. Poor Vlad. No one else from my section will want to work with him after he gets out. They'll be afraid to be seen with him. But we need him, and you are going to help me. Vlad will work here, and you'll keep an eye on him. It can be a kind of house arrest. But what about my work in metallurgy? She glared at me. Your new work will be Comrade Zipkin's rehabilitation. You'll volunteer to do it, and you'll tell the higher circles, that he's become a splendid example of communist dedication. He'd better get the order of Lenin, understand? This isn't fair, comrade captain. Be reasonable. Listen, you hypocrite swine. I know all about you and your black market dealings. Those shoes cost more than you make in a month. She snatched the iron off the end of my board and slammed it flat against my brand new suit. Steam curled up. All right, I cried, wringing my hands. I'll help him. I yanked the suit away and splashed water on the scorched fabric. Nina laughed and stormed out of the house. I felt terrible. A man can't help it if he needs to dress well. It's unfair to hold a thing like that over someone. Months passed. The spring of 1958 arrived. The dog, Laika, had been shot into the cosmic void. A good dog, a Russian, an earthling. The Americans' first launches had failed, and then, in February, they shot up a laughable Sputnik, no bigger than a grapefruit. Meanwhile, we metallurgists forged ahead on the mighty RD-108 supercluster paraffin-fueled engine, which would lift our first cosmonaut into the infinite. There were technical snags and gross lapses in space worker ideology, but much progress was made. Captain Nina dropped by several times to bluster and grumble about Vlad. She blamed me for everything, but it was Vlad's problem. All one has to do, really, is tell the mental health workers what they want to hear. But Zipkin couldn't seem to master this. A third Sputnik was launched in May 1958 with much instrumentation on board, yet it still failed to broadcast a coherent propaganda statement, much less sing the Internationale. Vlad was missed, and missed badly. 
I awaited Vlad's return with some trepidation. Would he resent me? Fear me? Despise me? For my part, I simply wanted Vlad to like me. And going over his dossier, I had come to see that despite his eccentricities, the man was indeed a genius. I resolved to take care of Vlad Zipkin, to protect him from his irrational sociopathic impulses. A KGB ambulance brought Vlad and his belongings to my dacha early one Sunday morning in July. He looked pale and disoriented. I greeted him with false heartiness. Greetings, Vladimir Eduardovich. It's an honor and a joy to have you share my dacha. Come in, come in. I have yogurt and fresh gooseberries. Let me help you carry all that stuff inside. So it was you. Vlad was silent while we carried his suitcase and three boxes of belongings into the dacha. When I urged him to eat with me, his face took on a desperate cast. Please, Klobov, leave me alone now. Those months in the hospital. You can't imagine what it's been like. Vlad, don't worry. This dacha is your home and I'm your friend. Vlad grimaced. Just let me spend the day alone in your garden. And don't tell the KGB I'm antisocial. I want to conform. I do want to fit in. But for God's sake, not today. Vlad, believe me, I want only the best for you. Go out and lie in the hammock. Eat the berries. Enjoy the sun. Vlad's pale eyes bulged as they fell on my framed official photograph of Laika the cosmonaut dog. The dog had a weird frog-like rubber oxygen mask on her face. Just before launch, she had been laced up within a he heavy, stiff spacesuit, a kind of canine straitjacket, actually. Vlad frowned and shuddered. I guess it reminded him of his recent unpleasantness. Vlad yanked my vodka bottle off the kitchen counter and headed outside without another word. I watched him through the window. He looked well enough, sipping vodka, picking blackberries, and finally falling asleep in the hammock. His suitcase contained very little of interest, and his boxes were mostly filled with books. Most were technical, but many were scientific romances. The Socialist, H.G. Wells, Chopek, Yefremov, Kazantsev, and the like. When Vlad awoke, he was in much better spirits. I showed him around the property. The garden stretched back 30 meters, where there was a snug outhouse. We strolled together out into the muddy streets. In Vlad's urging, I got the guards to open the gate for us, and we walked out into the peaceful birch and pine woods around the Kliasma Reservoir. It had rained heavily during the preceding week, and mushrooms were everywhere. We amused ourselves by gathering the edible ones. Every Russian knows mushrooms. Vlad knew an instant pickling technique based on lightly boiling the mushrooms in brine, then packing them in ice and vinegar. It worked well back in our kitchen, and I congratulated him. He was as pleased as a child. In the days that followed, I realized that Vlad was not anti-party. He was simply very unworldly. He was one of those gifted unfortunates who can't manage life without a protector. Still, his opinion carried a lot of weight around the center, and he worked on important problems. I escorted him everywhere, except the labs I wasn't cleared for, 
reminding him not to blurt out anything stupid. Of course, my own work suffered. I told my co-workers that Vlad was a sick relative of mine, which explained my common absence from the job. Rather than being disappointed by my absence, though, the other engineers praised my dedication to Vlad and encouraged me to spend plenty of time with him. I liked Vlad, but soon grew tired of the constant shepherding. He did most of his work in our dacha, which kept me cooped up there when I could have been out, cutting deals with no kidza or reporting on the beatnik scene. It was too bad that Captain Nina Bogolyabova had fallen down on her job. She should have been watching over Vlad from the first. Now I had to tidy up after her bungling, so I felt she owed me some free time. I hinted tactfully at this when she arrived with a sealed briefcase containing some of Vlad's work. My reward was another furious tongue lashing. You parasite! How dare you suggest that I failed Vladimir Dwardovich? I have always been aware of his value as a theorist and as a man. He's worth any ten of you Stukach vermin. The chief designer himself has asked after Vladimir's health. The chief designer spent years in a labor camp under Stalin. He knows it's no disgrace to be shot away by some lick spittle sneak. There was more and worse. I began to feel that Captain Bogolyabova, in her violent, tartar way, had personal feelings for Vlad. Also, I had not known that our chief designer had been in camp. This was not good news because people who have spent time in detention sometimes become embittered and lose proper perspective. Many people were being released from labor camps now that Nikita Khrushchev had become the leader of progressive mankind. Also, amazing and almost insolent things were being published in the literary gazette. Like most Ukrainians, I liked Khrushchev, but he had a funny peasant accent, and everyone made fun of the way he talked on the radio. We never had such problems in Stalin's day. We Soviets had achieved a magnificent triumph in space, but I feared we were becoming lax. It saddened me to see how many space engineers, technicians, and designers avoided party discipline. They claimed that their 80-hour work weeks excused them from indoctrination meetings. Many read foreign technical documents without proper clearance. Proper censorship was evaded. Technicians from different departments sometimes gathered to discuss their work privately, simply between themselves, without an actual need to know. Vlad's behavior was especially scandalous. He left top-secret documents scattered about the dacha, where one's eye could not help but fall on them. He often drank to excess. He invited engineers from other departments to come visit us, and some of them, not knowing his dangerous past, accepted. It embarrassed me because when they saw Vlad and me together, they soon guessed the truth. Still, I did my best to cover Vlad's tracks and minimize his indiscretions, and this I failed miserably. One evening, to my astonishment, I found him mulling over working papers for the RD-108 supercluster engine. He had built a cardboard model of the rocket out of roller tubes from my private stock of toilet paper. Where did you get those, I demanded. 
Found him in a box in the outhouse. No, the documents, I shouted. That's not your department. Those are state secrets. Vlad shrugged. It's all wrong, he said thickly. He had been drinking again. What? Our original rocket, the 107, had four nozzles. But this 108 supercluster has 20. Look, the extra engines are just bundled up like bananas and attached to the main rocket. They're held on with hoops. The Americans will laugh when they see this. But they won't. I snatched the blueprints out of his hands. Who gave you these? Korolyov did, Vlad muttered. Sergei Pavlovich. The chief designer, I said, stunned. Yeah. We were talking it over in the sauna this morning, Vlad said. Your old pal Nikidzi came by while you were at work this morning, and he and I had a few. So I walked down to the bathhouse to sweat it off. Turned out the chief was in the sauna too. He'd been up all night working. He and I did some time together once, years ago. We used to look up at the stars, talk rockets together. So anyway, he turns to me and says, You know how much thrust Von Braun is getting from a single engine? And I said, Oh, it must be 80, 90 tons, right? Right, he said, and we're getting 25. We'll have to strap 20 together to launch one man. We need a miracle, Vladimir. I'm ready to try anything. So then I told him about this book I've been reading. I said, you were drunk on working hours and the chief designer saw you in the sauna? He sweats like anybody else, Vlad said. I told him about this new fiction writer, Alexander Kazantsev. He's a thinker, that boy. Vlad tapped the side of his head meaningfully then scratched his ribs inside his filthy house robe and lit a cigarette. I felt like killing him. Kazantsev says we're not the first explorers in space. There have been others, beings from the void. It's no surprise the great space prophet Tchaikovsky said there are an infinite number of inhabited worlds. You know how much the chief designer admired Tchaikovsky. And when you look at the evidence, I mean this Tunguska thing, it begins to add up nicely. Tunguska, I said, fighting back a growing sense of horror. That's in Siberia, isn't it? Sure. So anyway, I said, Chief, why are you wasting our time on these firecrackers when we have a shot at true star flight? Send out a crew of trained investigators to the impact site of this so-called Tunguska meteor. Run an information theoretic analysis. If it really was an atomic-powered spacecraft, like Kazantsev says, then maybe there's something left that could help us. I winced, imagining Vlad in the sauna, drunk, first bringing up disgusting prison memories and then babbling on about space fiction to the premier genius of Soviet rocketry. It was horrible. What did the chief say to you? He said it sounded promising, said Vlad airily. Said he'd get things rolling right away. You got any more of those Kents? I slumped into my chair, dazed. Look inside my boots, I said numbly, my Italian ones. Oh, Vlad said in a small voice. I sort of found those last week. I roused myself. The chief let you see the supercluster plans and said you ought to go to Siberia? 
Oh, not just you and me, Vlad said, amused. He needs a really thorough investigation. We'll commandeer a whole train, get all the personnel and equipment we need. Vlad grinned. Excited, Nikita? My head spun. The man was a demon. I knew in my soul that he was goading me, deliberately, sadistically. Suddenly I realized how sick I was of Vlad, of constantly watchdogging this visionary moron. Words tumbled out of me. I hate you, Zipkin! So this is your revenge at last, eh? Sending me to Siberia, you beatnik scum! You think you're smart, Blondie? You're weak! You're sick, that's what! I wish the KGB had shot you, you stupid, selfish, crazy! My eyes flooded with sudden tears. Vlad patted my shoulder, surprised. Now don't get all worked up. You're nuts, I sobbed. You rocket ship types are all crazy, every one of you. Storming the cosmos. Well, you can storm my sacred ass. I'm not boarding any secret train to nowhere. Now, now, Vlad soothed. My imagination, your thoroughness, we make a great team. Just think of them pinning awards on us. If it's such a great idea, then you do it. I'm not slogging through some stinking wilderness. Be logical, Vlad said, rolling his eyes in derision. You know I'm not well trusted. Your higher circles don't understand me the way you do. I need you along to smooth things, that's all. Relax, Nikita, I promise. I'll split the fame and glory with you fair and square. Of course, I did my best to diffuse, or at least avoid, this lunatic scheme. I protested to higher circles. My usual contact, a balding jazz fanatic named Colonel Popoff, watched me blankly with the empty stare of a professional interrogator. I hinted broadly that Vlad had been misbehaving with classified documents. Popov ignored this, absently tapping a pencil on his special phone in the catchy 5-4 rhythm. Hesitantly, I mentioned Vlad's insane mission. Popov still gave no response. One of the phones, not the special one, rang loudly. Popov answered, said yes three times, and left the room. I waited a long hour, careful not to look at or touch anything on his desk. Finally, Popov returned. I began at once to babble. I knew his silent treatment was an old trick, but I couldn't help it. Popov cut me off. Marx's laws of historic development apply universally to all societies, he said, sitting in his squeaking chair. That, of course, includes possible star-dwelling societies. He steepled his fingers. It follows logically that progressive interstellar voidites would look kindly on us progressive peoples. But the Tunguska meteor fell in 1908, I said. Interesting, Popov mused. Historical determinist cosmic oids could have calculated through Marxist science that Russia would be the first to achieve communism. They might well have left us some message or legacy. But comrade colonel, Popov rustled, opened a desk drawer. Have you read this book? It was Kazantsev's Space Romance. It's all the rage at the Space Center these days. I got my copy from your friend, Nina Bogolyubova. Well, I said, then why do you presume to debate me without even reading the facts? Popov folded his arms. We find it significant 
that the Tunguska event took place on June 30, 1908. Today is June 15, 1958. If heroic measures are taken, you may reach the Tunguska Valley on the very day of the 50th anniversary. That tartar cow, Bogolyubova, had gotten to the higher circles first. Actually, it didn't surprise me that our KGB would support Vlad's scheme. They controlled our security, but our complex engineering and technical developments much exceeded their mental grasp. Space aliens, however, were a concept anyone could understand. Any skepticism on their part was crushed by the chief designer's personal support for the scheme. The chief had been getting a lot of play in Khrushchev's speeches lately and was known as a miracle worker. If he said it was possible, that was good enough for security. I was helpless. An expedition was organized in frantic haste. Naturally, it was vital to have KGB along. Me, of course, since I was guarding Vlad. And Nina Bogolyubova, as she was Vlad's superior. But then, the KGB of the other departments grew jealous of metallurgy and information mechanics. They suspected that we were pulling a fast one. Suppose an artifact really was discovered. It would make all our other work obsolete overnight. Would it not be best that each department have a KGB observer present? Soon we found no end of applications for the expedition. We were lavishly equipped. We had 10 railway cars. Four held our Red Army escort and their tracked all-terrain vehicles. We also had three sleepers, a galley car, and two flat cars piled high with rations, tents, excavators, Geiger counters, radios, and surveying instruments. Vlad brought a bulky calculating device. Captain Nina supplied her own mysterious crates, and I had a box of metallurgical analysis equipment in case we found a piece of the UFO. We were towed through Moscow under tight security. Then our cars were shackled to the green and yellow Trans-Siberian Express. Soon, the expedition was chugging across the endless, featureless steppes of Central Asia. I grew so bored that I was forced to read Kazantsev's book. On June 30, 1908, a huge, mysterious fireball had smashed into the Tunguska River Valley of the Central Siberian uplands. The place was impossibly remote. Kazantsev suggested that the crash point had been chosen deliberately to avoid injuring earthlings. It was not until 1927 that the first expedition reached the crash site, revealing terrific devastation, but no sign whatsoever of a meteorite. They found no impact crater either, only the swampy Tunguska Valley surrounded by an elliptical blast pattern 60 kilometers of dead, smashed trees. Kazantsev pointed out that the facts suggested a nuclear air burst. Perhaps it was a deliberate detonation by aliens to demonstrate atomic power to earthlings. Or it might have been the accidental explosion of a nuclear starship drive. In an accidental crash, a socially advanced alien pilot 
would naturally guide his stricken craft to one of the planet's poles of uninhabitedness. And eyewitness reports made it clear that the Tunguska body had definitely changed course in flight. Once I had read this excellent work, my natural optimism surfaced again. Perhaps we would find something grand in Tunguska, after all, something miraculous that the 1927 expedition had overlooked. Kulik's expedition had missed it, but now we were in the atomic age. Or so we told ourselves. It seemed much more plausible on a train, but two dozen other explorers, all eager for the great adventure. It was an unsought vacation for us hard-working Stukachi. Work had been savage throughout our departments, and we, KGB, had a tough time keeping track of our comrades' correctness. Meanwhile, back in Kaliningrad, they were still laboring away. While we relaxed in the dining saloon, with pegged chessboards and tall brass samovars of steaming tea. Vlad and I shared our own sleeping car. I forgave him for having involved me in this mess. We became friends again. This would be real man's work, we told each other, tramping through the savage taiga with bears, wolves, and Siberian tigers, hunting strange, possibly dangerous relics, relics that might change the very course of cosmic history. No more of this poring over blueprints and formulae like clerks. Neither of us had fought in the Great Patriotic War. I'd been too young, and Vlad had been in some camp or something. Other guys were always bragging about how they'd stormed this or shelled that or eaten shoe leather in Stalingrad. Well, we'd soon be making them feel pretty small. Day after day, the countryside rolled past. First, the endless grassy steppes, then a dark wall of pine forest broken by white barked birches. Khrushchev's Virgin Lands campaign was in full swing and the radio was full of patriotic stuff about settling the wilderness. Every few hundred kilometers, especially by rivers, raw and ugly new towns had sprung up along the Trans-Siberian line. Prefab apartment blocks, mud streets, cement trucks, and giant sooty power plants. Trains unloaded huge spools of black wire. Electrification was another big propaganda theme of 1958. Our trans-Siberian train stopped often to take on passengers, but our long section was sealed under order from higher circles. We had no chance to stretch our legs, and slowly all our carriages filled up with the reek of dirty clothes and endless cigarettes. I was doing my best to keep Vlad's spirits up when Nina Bogolyabova entered our carriage, ducking under a line of wet laundry. Ah, Nina Igorovna, I said trying to keep things friendly. Vlad and I were just discussing something. Exactly what does it take to merit burial in the Kremlin? Oh, put a cork in it, Bogolyabova said testily. My money says your so-called spacecraft was just a chunk of ice and gas, probably a piece of a comet which vaporized on impact. Maybe it's worth a look, but that doesn't mean I have to swallow crackpot pseudoscience. She said on the bunk, facing Vlad's, where he sprawled out, stunned with boredom and strong cigarettes. Nina opened her briefcase. Vladimir, I've developed those pictures I took of you. Yeah. 
She produced a Curlian photograph of his hand. Look at these spiky flares of suppressed energy from your fingertips. Your aura has changed since we've boarded the train. Vlad frowned. I could do with a few deciliters of vodka, that's all. She shook her head quickly, then smiled and blinked at him flirtatiously. Vladimir Edwardovich, you're a man of genius. You have strong, passionate drives. Vlad studied her for a moment, obviously weighing her dubious attractions against his extreme boredom. An affair with a woman who was his superior and also KGB would be grossly improper and risky. Vlad naturally caught my eye and winked. Look, Nikita, take a hike for a while, okay? He was putty in her hands. I was disgusted by the way she exploited Vlad's weaknesses. I left him in her carnal clutches, though I felt really sorry for Vlad. Maybe I could scare him up something to drink. The closest train stop to Tunguska is near a place called Ust-Ilimsk, 200 kilometers north of Bratsk and 3,000 long kilometers from Moscow. Even London, England is twice as close to Moscow as Tunguska. A secondary line engine hauled our string of cars to a tiny railway junction in the absolute middle of nowhere. Then it chugged away. It was four in the morning of June 26, but since it was summer, it was already light. There were five families running the place, living in log cabins, chinked with mud. Our ranking KGB officer, an officious jerk named Chalame, unsealed our doors. Vlad and I jumped out onto the rough boards of the siding. After days of ceaseless train vibration, we staggered around like sailors who'd lost their land legs. All around us was raw wilderness, huge birches and tough Siberian pines with knobby, shallow roots. Permafrost was only two feet underground. There was nothing but trees and marsh for days in all directions. I found it very depressing. We tried to strike up a conversation with a local supervisor. He spoke bad Russian and looked like a relocated Latvian. The rest of our company piled out, yawning and complaining. When he saw them, our host turned pale. He wasn't much like the brave pioneers on the posters. He looked scrawny and glum. Quite a place you have here, I observed. It's better than labor camp, I always thinking, he said. He murmured something to Vlad. Yeah, Vlad said thoughtfully, looking at our crew. Now that you mention it, they are all police sneaks. With much confusion, we began unloading our train cars. Slowly, the siding filled up with boxes of rations, bundled tents, and wooden crates labeled secret and this side up. A fight broke out between our civilians and our Red Army Detachment. Our Kaliningrad folk were soon sucking their blisters and rubbing strained backs, but the soldiers refused to do the work alone. Things were getting out of hand. I urged Vlad to give them all a good talking to, a good ringing speech, to establish who was who and what was what. Something simple and forceful with lots of marching steadfastly together and storming the stars and so on. I'll give them something better, said Vlad, running his hands back through his hair. I'll give them the truth. 
He climbed atop a crate and launched into a strange, ideologically incorrect harangue. Comrades, you should think of Einstein's teachings. Matter is illusion. Why do you struggle so? Space-time is the ultimate reality. Space-time is one, and we are all patterns on it. We are ripples, comrades, wrinkles in the fabric of the... Einstein is a tool of international Zionism, shouted someone. And you are a dog, said Vlad evenly. Nevertheless, you and I are the same. We are different parts of the cosmic one. Matter is just a... Drop dead, yelled another heckler. Death is an illusion said Vlad, his smile tightening. A person's space-time pattern codes an information pattern which the cosmos is free to... It was total gibberish. Everyone began shouting and complaining at once, and Vlad's speech stuttered to a halt. Our KGB colonel, Chalamet, jumped up on a crate and declared that he was taking charge. He was attached directly to the chief designer's staff, he shouted, and was fed up with our expedition's laxity. This was nothing but pure mutiny, but nobody else outranked him in KGB. It looked like Chalamet would get away with it. He then tried to order our Red Army boys to finish the unloading, but they got mulish. There were six of them, all Central Asian Uzbeks from Ukduk, a Hickberg and Uzbekskaya. They'd all joined the Red Army together, probably at gunpoint, their leader was Master Sergeant Mukhamid, a rough character with a broken nose and puffy, scarred eyebrows. He looked and acted like a tank. Mukhamid bellowed that his orders didn't include acting as house serfs for egghead aristocrats. Chalamet insinuated how much trouble he could make for Mukhamid, but Mukhamid only laughed. I may be just a dumb Uzbek, Muhammad roared, but I didn't just fall off the turnip truck. Why do you think this train is full of you worthless stukachi? It's so those big brain rocket boys you left behind could get some real work done for once without you stoolies hanging around, stirring up trouble to make yourselves look good. They'd love to see you scum break your necks in the swamps of Siberia. He said a great deal more, but the damage was already done. Our expedition's morale collapsed like a burst balloon. The rest of the group refused to move another millimeter without direct orders from higher circles. We spent three days then on the station's telegraph, waiting for orders. The glorious 50th anniversary of the event came and went, and everything was screwed up and in a total shambles. The gloomiest rumors spread among us. Some said, that the chief designer had tricked us KGB to get us out of the way, and others said that Khrushchev himself was behind it. There were always rumors of struggle between party and KGB at the very highest circles. Whatever it meant, we were all sure to be humiliated when we got back, and heads would roll. I was worried sick. If this really was a plot, to hoodwink KGB, then I was in it up to my neck. Then the galley car caught fire during the night, and sabotage was suspected. The locals, fearing interrogation, fled into the forest, though it was probably just one of Chalamet's Ducachi being careless with a samovar. Orders finally arrived from higher circles. 
KGB personnel were to return to their posts for a reassessment of their performance. This did not sound promising at all. No such orders were given to Vlad or the expedition regulars, whatever that meant. Apparently, the higher circles had not yet grasped that there were no expedition regulars. Nina and I were both severely implicated, so we both decided that we were certainly regulars and should put off going back as long as possible. Together with Vlad, we had a long talk with Sergeant Muhammad, who seemed a sensible sort. We're better off without those desk jockeys, Muhammad said bluntly. This is rough country. We can't waste time tying up the shoelaces of those Moscow ferries. Besides, my orders say Zitkin, and I don't see KGB written anywhere on them. Maybe he's right, Vlad said. We're in so deep now that our best chance is to actually find an artifact and prove them all wrong. Results are what count, after all. We've come this far. Why turn tail now? Our own orders said nothing about the equipment. It turned out there was far too much of it for us to load it aboard the Red Army tractor vehicles. We left most of it on the sidings. We left early, next morning, while the others were still snoring. We had three all-terrain vehicles with us, brand new Red Army amphibious personnel carriers called BTR-50s, or Butors in Army slang. They had camouflage steel armor and rode very low to the ground on broad tracks. They had loud, rugged diesel engines and good navigation equipment with room for 10 troops each and a bay in the back. The front had slits and searchlights and little pop-up armored hatches for the driver and commander. The Butors floated in water, too, and could churn through the thickest mud like a salamander. We scientists rode in the first vehicle, while the second carried equipment and the third fuel. Once underway, our spirits rose immediately. You could always depend on the good old Red Army to get the job done. We roared through woods and swamps with a loud, comforting racket, scaring up large flocks of herons and geese. Our photo reconnaissance maps, which had been issued to us under the strictest security, helped us avoid the worst obstacles. The days were long, and we made good speed, stopping only a few hours a night. It took three days of steady travel to reach the Tunguska Basin. Cone-shaped hills surrounded the valley like watchtowers. The terrain changed here. Mummified trees strewed the ground like jackstraws, many of them oddly burnt. Trees decayed very slowly in the Siberian taiga. They were deep frozen all winter and stayed whole for decades. Dusk fell. We bowled our way around the slope of one of the hills while leafless, withered branches crunched and shrieked beneath our treads. The marshy Tunguska Valley, clogged and gray with debris, came into view. Sergeant Muhammad called a halt. The maze of fallen lumber was too much for our machines. We tottered out of the butors and savored the silence. My kidneys felt like jelly from days of lurching and jarring. I stood by our butor, resting my hand on it, taking comfort in the fact that it was man-made. The rough travel and savage dreariness 
had taken the edge off my enthusiasm. I needed a drink. But our last liter of vodka had gone out the train window somewhere between Omsk and Tomsk. Nina had thrown it away for Vlad's sake. She was acting more like a lovesick schoolgirl every day. She was constantly fussing over Vlad, tidying him up, watching his diet, leaping heavily to his defense in every conversation. Vlad, of course, merely sopped up this devotion as his due, too absent-minded to notice it. Vlad had a real talent for that. I wasn't sure which of the two of them was more disgusting. At last, Vlad exulted, look, Ninochka, the sight of the mystery, isn't it sublime? Nina smiled and linked her solid arm with his. The dusk thickened, huge taiga mosquitoes whirred past our ears and settled to sting and pump blood. We slapped furiously, then set up our camp amid a ring of dense, smoky fires. To our alarm, answering fires flared up on the five other hilltops ringing the valley. Evenks, grumbled Sergeant Muhammad, savage nomads. They live off their reindeer and camp in round tents called yurts. No one can civilize them. It's hopeless. Best just to ignore them. Why are they here, Nina said. Such a bleak place. Vlad rubbed his chin. The record of the 27 Kulik expedition said the Evenk tribes remembered the explosion. They spoke of a thunder god smiting the valley. They must know this place pretty well. I'm telling you, Rasmukhamid, stay away. The men are all mushroom eaters and the women are all whores. One of the shaven-headed Uzbek privates looked up from his tin of rations. Really, Sarge? Their girls have lice, as big as your thumbnails, the sergeant said. And the men don't like strangers. When they eat those poison toadstools, they get like wild beasts. We had tea and hardtack, sniffling and wiping our eyes from the bug-repelling smoke. Vlad was full of plans. Tomorrow, we'll gather data on the direction of the tree falls. That'll show us the central impact point. Nina, you can help me with that. Nikita, you can stay here and help the soldiers set up base camp. And maybe later tomorrow, we'll have an idea of where to look for our artifact. Later that night, Vlad and Nina crept out of our long tent. I heard restrained groaning and sighing for half an hour. The soldiers snored on peacefully while I lay under the canvas with my eyes wide open. Finally, Nina shuffled in, followed by Vlad, brushing mud from his knees. I slept poorly that night. Maybe Nina was no sexy, hard currency girl, but she was a woman, and even a stukach can't overhear that sort of thing without getting hot and bothered. After all, I had my needs, too. Around one in the morning, I gave up trying to sleep and stepped out of the tent for some air. An incredible aurora display greeted me. We were late, for the 50th anniversary of the Tunguska crash, but I had the feeling the valley was welcoming me. There was an arc of rainbow light directly overhead with crimson and yellow streamers shooting out from the zenith toward the horizons 
wide, luminous bands paralleling the arch kept rising out of the horizon to roll across the heavens with swift, steady majesty. The bands crashed into the arch like long breakers from a sea of light. The great auroral rainbow, with all its wavering streamers, began to swing slowly upwards, and a second, brighter arch formed below it. The new arch shot a long, serried row of slender, colored lances toward the Tunguska Valley. The lances stretched down, touched, and a lightning flash of vivid orange glared out, filling the whole world around me. I held my breath, waiting for the thunder, but the only sound was Nina's light snoring. I watched for a while longer, until finally the great cosmic tide of light shivered into pieces. At the very end, disks appeared, silvery, shimmering saucers that filled the sky. Truly, we had come to a very strange place, filled with profound emotions. I was able to forget myself and sleep. Next morning, everyone woke up refreshed and cheerful. Vlad and Nina traipsed off with the surveying equipment. With the soldiers' help, I set up the diesel generator for Vlad's portable calculator. We did some camp scut work, cutting heaps of firewood, digging a proper latrine. By then it was noon, but the lovebirds were still not back. So I did some exploring of my own. I tramped downhill into the disaster zone. I realized almost at once that our task was hopeless. The ground was squelchy and dead beneath a thick, tangling shroud of leafless pines. We couldn't look for wreckage systematically without hauling away the musty, long-dead crust of trees. Even if we managed that, the ground itself was impossibly soggy and treacherous. I despaired. The valley itself oppressed my soul. The rest of the taiga had chipmunks, wood grouse, the occasional heron or squirrel, but this swamp seemed lifeless, poisonous. In many places, the earth had sagged into shallow bowls and depressions as if the rock below it had rotted away. New young pines had sprung up to take the place of the old, but I didn't like the look of them. The green saplings growing up through the gray skeletons of their ancestors were oddly stunted and twisted. A few older pines had been half-sheltered from the blast by freaks of topography. The living bark on their battered limbs and trunks showed repulsive, puckered blast scars. Something malign had entered the soil. Perhaps poisoned comet ice, I thought. I took samples of the mud, mostly to impress the soldiers back at camp. I wasn't much of a scientist, but I knew how to go through the motions. While digging, I disturbed an ant nest. The strange, big-headed ants emerged from their tunnels and surveyed the damage with eerie calm. By the time I returned to camp, Vlad and Nina were back. Vlad was working on his calculator while Nina read out direction angles of the felled trees. We're almost done, Nina told me, her broad-cheeked face full of bovine satisfaction. We're running an information theoretic analysis to determine the ground location of the explosion.
The soldiers looked impressed, but the upshot of Vlad's and Nina's fancy analysis was what any fool could see by glancing at the elliptical valley. The brunt of the explosion had burst from the nearer focus of the ellipse directly over a little hill I'd had my eye on all along. I've been taking soil samples, I told Nina. I suspect odd trace elements in the soil. I suppose you notice the strange growth of the pines. They're particularly tall at the blast's epicenter. Hmm, Nina said. While you were sleeping last night, there was a minor aurora. I took photos. I think the geomagnetic field may have had an influence on the object's trajectory. That's elementary, I sniffed. What we need to study is a possible remagnetization of the rocks, especially at impact point. You're neglecting the biological element, Nina said. By now, these soldiers' heads were swiveling to follow our discussion like a tennis match. I suppose you didn't notice the faint luminescence of the sod? She pulled some crumpled blades of grass from her pocket. A Curlian analysis will prove interesting. But of course the ants, I began. Will you two fakers shut up a minute, Vlad broke in. I'm trying to think. I swallowed hard. Oh yes, comrade genius, what about? About finding what we came for, Nikita, the alien craft. Vlad frowned, waving his arm at the valley below us. I'm convinced it's buried out there somewhere. We don't have a chance in this tangle of news, but we've got to figure some way to sniff it out. At that moment, we heard the distant barking of a dog. Great, Vlad said without pausing. Maybe that's a bloodhound. He'd made a joke. I realized this after a moment, but by then it was too late to laugh. It's just some evac mutt, Sergeant Muhammad said. They keep sled dogs. Eat them, too. The dog barked louder, coming closer. Maybe it got loose. Ten minutes later... The dog bounded into our camp, barking joyously and frisking. It was a small, bright-eyed female husky with muddy legs and damp fur caked with bits of bark. That's no sled dog, Vlad said, wondering. That is a city mutt. What's it doing here? She was certainly friendly enough. She barked in excitement and sniffed at our hands trustingly. I patted the dog and called her a good girl. Where on earth did you come from, I asked. I'd always liked dogs. One of the soldiers addressed the dog in Uzbek and offered it some of his rations. It sniffed the food, took a tentative lick, but refused to eat it. Sit, Vlad said suddenly. The dog sat obediently. She understands Russian, Vlad said. Nonsense, I said. She just reacted to your voice. There must be other Russians nearby, Nina said. A secret research station, maybe? Something that we were never told about? Well... I guess we have a mascot, I said, scratching the dog's scalp. Come here, Laika, Vlad said. The dog pricked her ears and wandered toward him. I felt an icy sensation of horror. I snatched my hand back as if I had touched a corpse. With an effort, I controlled myself. Come on, Vlad, I said. You're joking again. Good dog, Vlad said, patting her. Vlad, I said. Laika's rocket burned up on re-entry. Yes, Vlad said. The first creature we earthlings put into space was sentenced to be burned alive. I often think about that. Vlad stared dramatically into the depths of the valley. Comrades, I think something is waiting here to help us 
storm the cosmos. I think it preserved Laika's soul and reanimated her here at this place and at this time. It's no coincidence. This is no ordinary animal. This is Laika the cosmonaut dog. Laika barked loudly. I had never seen the dog without the rubber oxygen mask on her face, but I knew with a thrill of supernatural fear that Vlad was right. I felt an instant irrational urge to kill the dog, or at least give her a good kick. If I killed her and buried her, I wouldn't have to think about what she meant. The others looked equally stricken. Probably fell off a train, Muhammad muttered at last. Vlad regally ignored this frail reed of logic. We ought to follow Laika. The thunder god put her here to lead us. It won't get dark till 10 o'clock. Let's move out, comrades. Vlad stood up and shrugged on his backpack. Mukambid? Uh, the sergeant said. My orders are to stay with the vehicles. He cleared his throat and spat. There are evanks about. Natural thieves. We wouldn't want our camp to be raided. Vlad looked at him in surprise and then with pity. He walked toward me, threw one arm over my shoulder and took me aside. Makita? These Uzbeks are brave soldiers, but they're a bit superstitious, terrified of the unknown. What a laugh. But you and I, scientists, space pioneers, the unknown is our natural habitat, right? Well, come on, Nikita, he glowered. We can't go back and face the top brass empty-handed. Nina joined us. I knew you'd turn yellow, Globov. Never mind him, Vlad, darling. Why should you share your fame and glory with this sneaking coward? I'll go with you. You're a woman, Vlad assured her loftily. You're staying here where it's safe. But Vlad, Vlad folded his arms. Don't make me have to beat you. Nina blushed girlishly and looked at the toes of her hiking boots. She could have broken his back like a twig. The dog barked loudly and capered at our feet. Come on, Vlad said. He set off without looking back. I grabbed my pack and followed him. I had to. I was guarding him. No more Vlad, no more Globoff. Our journey was a nightmare. The dog kept trying to follow us and would run, yipping through rat holes in the brush that we had to circle painfully. Half on intuition, we headed for the epicenter of the blast, the little hillock at the valley's focus. It was almost dusk again when we finally reached it, battered, scratched, and bone-tired. We found a yurt there, half-hidden in a slough off to one side of the hill. It was an evank, reindeer-skin tent, oozing grayish smoke from a vent hole. A couple of scabby reindeer were pegged down outside it, gnawing at a lush, purplish patch of swamp moss. The dead trees around had been heavily seared by the blast, leaving half-charcoal, bubbly lumps of ancient resin. Some ferns and rushes had sprung up, corkscrewed, malformed, and growing with cancerous vigor. The dog barked loudly at the wretched reindeer who looked up with bleary-eyed indifference. We heard leather thongs hiss loose in the door flap. A pale face, framed in a greasy fur hood, poked through. It was a young Event girl. 
She called to the dog, then noticed us and giggled quietly. The dog rushed toward the yurt, wagging her tail. Hello, Vlad called. He spread his open hands. Come on out, we're friends. The girl stepped out and inched toward us, watching the ground carefully. She paused at a small twig, her dilated eyes goggling as if it were a boulder. She high-jumped far over it and landed giggling. She wore an elaborate reindeer skin jacket that hung past her knees, thickly embroidered with little beads of bone and wood. She also had tight fur trousers with lumpy beaded booties sewn all in one piece like a child's pajamas. She sidled up grinning coyly and touched my face and clothes in curiosity. Nikita, I said, touching my chest. Balan Thok, she whispered. Running one fingertip down her sweating throat, she laughed drunkenly. Is that your dog? Vlad said. She came from the sky, he gestured extravagantly. Something under the earth here brought her down from the sky, yes? I shrieked suddenly. A gargoyle had appeared in the tent's opening. But the blank, ghastly face was only a wooden ceremonial mask shaped like a frying pan with a handle to grip below the chin. The mask had eye slits and a carved mouth hole fringed with a glued-on beard of reindeer hair. Behind it was Balan Thok's father, or maybe grandfather. Cunningly, the old villain peered at us around the edge of his mask. His face was as wrinkled as an old boot. The sides of his head were shaven, and filth-choked white hair puffed from the top like a thistle. His long reindeer coat was fringed with black fur and covered with bits of polished bone and metal. We established the old savage was called Jif Gerd. Vlad went through his sky-pointing routine again. Jif Gerd returned briefly to his leather yurt and re-emerged with a long wooden spear. Grinning vacuously, he jammed the butt of it into a socket in the ground and pointed to the heavens. I don't like the look of this, I told Vlad at once. That spear has dried blood on it. Yeah, I heard of this, Vlad said. Sacrifice poles for the thunder god. Kulik wrote about them. He turned to the old man. That's right, he encouraged. Thunder god, he pointed to the dog. Thunder god brought this dog down. Thunder god said Jifgird seriously. Dog. He looked up at the sky reverently. Thunder God. He made a descending motion with his right arm, threw his hands apart to describe the explosion. Boom. That's right, that's right, Vlad said excitedly. Jifgird nodded. He bent down almost absent-mindedly and picked little Laika up by the scruff of the neck. Dog. Yes, yes, Vlad nodded eagerly. Before we could do anything, before we could realize what was happening, Jif Gerd reached inside his greasy coat, produced a long curved knife, and slashed poor Laika's throat. He lifted her up without effort. He was terribly strong, the strength of drug madness, and jammed her limp neck over the end of the spear as if gaffing a fish. Blood squirted everywhere. Flat and I jumped back, horrified. Hell, Vlad cried in anguish. I forgot that they sacrificed dogs. 
The hideous old man grinned and chattered excitedly. He was convinced that he understood us, that Vlad had wanted him to sacrifice the dog to the sky god. He approved of the idea. He approved of us. I said, he thinks we have something in common now, Vlad. Yeah, Vlad said. He looked sadly at Laika. Well, we rocket men sacrificed her first, poor beast. There goes our last lead to the UFO, I said. Poor Laika, all the way just for this. This guy's got to know where the thing is, Vlad said stubbornly. Look at the sly old codger. It's written all over his face. Vlad stepped forward. Where is it? Where did it land? He gestured wildly. You take us there. Balin Thok gnawed her slender knuckles and giggled at our antics, but it didn't take the old guy long to catch on. By gestures and a few key words, we established that the Thunder God was in a hole nearby, a hidden hole deep in the earth. He knew where it was. He would show it to us, but he wouldn't. It's a religious thing, Vlad said, mulling it over. I think we're ritually unclean. Muckamore, said the old man. He opened the tent flap and gestured us inside. The leather walls inside were black with years of soot. The yurt was round, maybe five steps across, and braced with a lattice of smooth, flat sticks and buckskin thongs. A fire blazed away in the yurt's center, Chunks of charred pine on a hearth of flat yellow stones. Dense smoke curdled the air. Two huge furry mounds loomed beside the hearth. They were Evenk sleeping bags, like miniature tents in themselves. Our eyes were caught by the drying racks over the fire. Mushrooms littered the racks. The red-capped fly agaric mushrooms, the one always sees in children's books the intoxicating toadstools of the Siberian nomad. Their steaming fungal reek filled the tent below the acrid stench of smoke and rancid sweat. Muckamoor, said Jithgird, pointing at them, and then at his head. Oh, Christ, Vlad said. He won't show us anything unless we eat his sacred mushrooms. He caught the geezer's eye and pantomimed eating. The old addict shook his head and held up a leather cup. He pretended to drink, then smacked his rubbery bearded lips. He pointed to Balan Thok. I don't get it, Vlad said. Right, I said, getting to my feet. Well, you hold him here, and I'll go back to camp. I'll have the soldiers in by midnight. We'll beat the truth out of the old dog butcher. Sit down, idiot! Vlad hissed. Don't you remember how quick he was with that knife? It was true. At my movement, a sinister gleam had entered the old man's eyes. I sat down quickly. We can outrun him. It's getting dark, Vlad said. Just three words, but they brought a whole scene into mind. Running blind through a maze of broken branches with a drug-crazed panting slasher at my heels. I smiled winningly at the old shaman. He grinned back and again made his drinking gesture. He tossed the leather cup to Balan Thok, who grabbed at it wildly and missed it by two meters. She picked it up and turned her back on us. We heard her fumble with the lacing of her trousers. She squatted down. There was a hiss of liquid. 
Oh, Jesus, I said. Vlad, no. I've heard about this, Vlad said wonderingly. The active ingredient passes on into the urine. Ten savages can get drunk on one mushroom, pass it from man to man. He paused. The kidneys absorb the impurities. It's supposed to be better for you that way, not as poisonous. Can't we just eat the muckamores, I said, pointing at the rack. The old shaman glowered at me and shook his head violently. Balan Thok sashayed toward me, hiding her face behind one sleeve. She put the warm cup into my hands and backed away, giggling. I held the cup. A terrible fatalism washed over me. Vladimir, I said, I'm tired. My head hurts. I've been stung all over by mosquitoes and my pants are drenched with dog blood. I don't want to drink the poison piss of some savage. It's for science, Vlad said soberly. All my life, I began, I wanted to work for the good of society. My dear mother, God bless her memory, I choked up. If she can see what her dear son has come to. All those years of training just for this, for this, Vlad. I began trembling violently. Don't spill it, Vlad said. Balan Thok stared at me, licking her lips. I think she likes you, Vlad said. For some weird reason, these last words pushed me over the edge. I shoved the cup to my lips and drained the potion in one go. It sizzled down my gullet in a wave of hot nausea. Somehow, I managed to keep from vomiting. How do you feel? Vlad asked eagerly. My face is going numb. I stared at Balanthok. Her eyes were full of hot fascination. I looked at her, willing her to come toward me. Nothing could be worse now. I had gone through the ultimate. I was ready, no, eager, to heap any degradation on myself. Maybe fornication with this degraded creature would raise me to some strange height. You're braver than I thought, Nikita, Vlad said. His voice rang with unnatural volume in my drugged ears. He pulled the cup from my numbed hands. Considered objectively, this is really not so bad. A healthy young woman sterile fluid. It's mere custom that makes it seem so repellent. He smiled in superior fashion, gripping the cup. Suddenly, the old Siberian shaman stood before him, guffawing crazily as he donated Vlad's share. A cheesy reek came from his dropped trousers. <laughs> Vlad stared at me in horror. I fell on my side, laughing wildly. My bones turned to rubber. The girl laughed like a xylophone, gesturing to me lewdly. Vlad was puking noisily. I got up to lurch toward the girl, but forgot to move my feet and fell down. My head was inflamed with intense desire for her. She was turning round and round, singing in a high voice, holding a curved knife over her head. Somehow I tackled her, and we fell headlong onto one of the Evenk sleeping bags, crushing it with a snapping of wood and lashings. I couldn't get out of my clothes. They were crawling over me like live things. I paused to retch, not feeling much pain, just a torrent of sensations as the drug came up. Vlad and the old man were singing together loudly and at great length. 
I was thumping around vaguely on top of the girl, watching a louse crawl through one of her braids. The old man came crawling up on all fours and stared into my face. Thunder God, he cackled and tugged at my arm. He had pulled aside a large reindeer skin that covered the floor of the yurt. There was a deep hole, right there, right in the tent with us. Fighting the cramps in my stomach, I dragged myself toward it and peered in. The space in the hole was strangely distorted. It was impossible to tell how deep it was. At its far end was a reticulated blue aurora that seemed to shift and flow in synchronization with my thoughts. For some reason, I thought of Laika and wished again that Jif Gurd hadn't killed her. The aurora pulsed at my thought, and there was a thump outside the tent, a thump followed by loud barking. Laika, I said. My voice came out slow and drugged. Balan Thok had her arms around my neck and was licking my face. Dragging her after me, I crawled to the tent flap and peered out. There was a dog-shaped glob of light out there, barking as if its throat would burst. I was scared, and I let Balan Thok pull me back into the tent. The full intoxication took over. Balan Thok undid my trousers and aroused me to madness. Vlad and the old man were lying at the edge of the Thunder God hole, staring down into the growing blue light and screaming to it. I threw Balanthok down between them, and we began coupling savagely. Each spastic twitch of our bodies was a coded message, a message that Vlad and Jif Gerd's howls were reinforcing. Our filth and drug madness became a sacred ritual, an Eleusinian mystery. Before too long, I could hear the voice of God. No, not God, and not the devil. The voice was from the blue light in the pit, and it wasn't a voice. It was the same, somehow, as the aurora I'd seen last night. It liked dogs, and it liked me. Behind all the frenzy, I was very happy there, shuddering on Balanthok. Time passed. At some point, there was more barking outside, and the old man screamed. I saw his face, underlit by the pulsing blue glow from the Thunder God hole. He bounded over me, waving his bloody knife overhead. I heard a gunshot from the tent door, and someone came crashing in. A person, led by a bright blue dog, Captain Nina. The dog had helped her find us. The dog ran over and snapped at me, forcing me away from Balanthok and the hole. I got hold of Vlad's leg and dragged him along with me. There was another shot, and then Nina was struggling hand to hand with the old man. Vlad staggered to his feet and tried to join the fight, but I got my arms around his thin chest and kept backing away. Jif Gerd and Nina were near the hole's jumpy light now, and I could see that they both were wounded. She had shot the old man twice with a pistol, but he had his knife and the strength of a maniac. The two of them wrestled hand to hand, clawing and screaming. Now Balan Thok rose to her knees and began slashing at Nina's legs with a short dagger. Nina's pistol pointed this way and that, constantly about to fire. I dragged Vlad backwards, and we tore through the rotting leather of the yurt's wall. 
an aurora like last night's filled the sky. Now that I wasn't staring into the hole, I could think a little bit. So many things swirled in my mind, but one fact above all stuck out. We had found an alien artifact. If only it was a rocket drive, then all of the terrible mess in the yurt could be forgotten. An incandescent blast lifted Vlad and me off the ground and threw us five meters. The entire yurt leapt into the sky. It was gone instantly, leaving a backward meteor trail of flaming orange in the sudden blackness of the sky. The sodden earth convulsed. From overhead, a leaping sonic boom pressed Vlad and me down into the muck where we had landed. I passed out. Vlad shook me awake after many hours. The sun was still burning above the horizon. It was another of those dizzying, endless, timeless summer days. I tried to remember what had happened. When my first memories came, I retched in pain. Vlad had started a roaring campfire from dead, mummified branches. Have some tea, Nikita, he said, handing me a tin army mug filled with hot yellow liquid. No, I choked weakly. No more. It's tea, Vlad said. I could tell his mind was running a mile a minute. Take it easy. It's all over. We're alive, and we found the star drive. That blast last night. His face hardened a bit. Why didn't you let me try to save poor Nina? I coughed and wiped my bloodshot, aching eyes. I tried to fit my last 12 hallucinated hours into some coherent pattern. The yurt, I croaked. The star drive shot it into the sky. That really happened? Nina shot the old man. She burst in with a kind of ghost dog. She burst in, and the old man rushed her with his knife. When the drive went off, it threw all of them into the sky. Nina, the two Evenks, even the two reindeer, and the dog. We were lucky. We were right at the edge of the ellipse. I saved you, Vlad. There was no way to save Nina, too. Please don't blame me. I needed his forgiveness because I felt guilty. I had a strange feeling that it had been my wish of finding a rocket drive that had made the artifact send out the fatal blast. Vlad sighed and scratched his ribs. Poor Ninochka. Imagine how it must have looked. Us rolling around screaming in delirium and you having filthy sex with that event girl. He frowned sadly. Not what you expect from Soviet scientists. I sat up to look at the elliptical blast area where the yurt had been. Nothing was left of it but a few sticks and thongs and bits of hide. The rest was a muddy crater. My God, Vlad. It's extremely powerful, Vlad said moodily. It wants to help us earthlings. I know it does. It saved Laika, remember? It saved her twice. Did you see the blue dog last night? Vlad frowned impatiently. I saw lots of things last night, Nikita, but now those things are gone. The drive is gone? Oh, no, Vlad said. I, I dug it out of the crater this morning. He gestured at our booty. It was sitting in the mud. Behind him, it was caked with dirt and weird powdery rust. It looked like an old tractor crankcase. Is that it? I said doubtfully. It looked better this morning, Vlad said. It was made of something like jade 
and was shaped like a vacuum cleaner with fins. But if you take your eyes off it, it changes. No, really? Vlad said. It's looked shabby ever since you woke up. It's picking up on your shame. That was really pretty horrible last night, Nikita. I never thought that you... I poked him sharply to shut him up. We looked at each other for a minute. Then I took a deep breath. The main thing is that we've got it, Vlad. This is a great day in history. Yeah, agreed Vlad, finally smiling. The drive looked shinier now. Help me rig up a sling for it. With great care, as much for our pounding heads as for the artifact itself, we bundled it up in Vlad's coat and slung it from a long, crooked shoulder pole. My head was still swimming. The mosquitoes were a nightmare. Vlad and I climbed up and over the splintery, denuded trunks of dead pines, stopping often to wheeze on the damp, metallic air. The sky was very clear and blue, the color of Lake Baikal. Sometimes when Vlad's head and shoulders were outlined against the sky, I seemed to see a faint, curly and shimmer traveling up the shoulder pole to dance on his skin. Panting with exhaustion, we stopped and gulped down more rations. Both of us had the trots. Small wonder. We built a good sooty fire to keep the bugs off for a while. We threw in some smoky green boughs from those nasty-looking young pines. Vlad could not resist the urge to look at it again. We unwrapped it. Vlad stared at it fondly. After this, it will belong to all mankind, he said, but for now, it's ours. It had changed again. Now, it had handles. They looked good and solid, less rusty than the rest. We lugged it by the handles until we got within earshot of the base camp. The soldiers heard our yells, and three of them came to help us. They told us about Nina on our way back. All day she had paced and fidgeted, worrying about Vlad and trying to talk the soldiers into a rescue mission. Finally, despite their good advice, she had set off after us alone. The Aurora fireworks during the night had terrified the Uzbeks. They were astonished to see that we had not only survived, but triumphed. But we had to tell them that Nina was gone. Sergeant Muhammad produced some 200-proof ethanol from the de-icing tank of his butor. Weeping unashamedly, we toasted the memory of our lost comrade, State Security Captain Nina Igorovna Bogolyubova. After that, we had another round, and I made a short but dignified speech about those who fall while storming the cosmos. Yes, dear Captain Nina was gone, but thanks to her sacrifice, we, her comrades, had achieved an unprecedented victory. She would never be forgotten. Vlad and I would see to that. We had another toast for our cosmic triumph, then another for the final victory. Then we were out of drinks. The Uzbeks hadn't been idle while Vlad and I had been gone. They didn't have live ammo, but a small bear had come snuffling round the camp the day before, and they'd managed to run over him with one of the butors. The air reeked of roast bear meat and dripping fat. 
Vlad and I had a good big rack of ribs each. The ribs in my chunk were pretty broken up, but it was still tasty. For the first time, I felt like a real hero, eating bear meat in Siberia. It was a heck of a thing. Now that we were back to the butors, our problems were behind us, and we could look forward to a real rain of gold, metals, and plenty of them, big dotches on the Black Sea, and maybe even lecture tours in the West where we could buy jazz records. All the Red Army boys figured they had big promotions coming. We broke camp and loaded the carriers. Vlad wouldn't join in the soldiers joking and kidding. He was still mooning about Nina. I felt sorry for Vlad. I'd never liked Nina much, and I'd been against her coming from the first. The wilderness was no place for females, and it was no wonder she'd come to grief. But I didn't point this out to Vlad. It would only have made him feel worse. Besides, Nina's heroic sacrifice had given a new level of deep moral meaning to our effort. We packed the drive away in the first butor where Vlad and I could keep an eye on it. Every time we stopped to refuel or study the maps, Vlad would open its wrappings and have a peek. I teased him about it. What's the matter, comrade? Want to chain it to your leg? Vlad was running his hand over and over the drive's rusty surface. Beneath his polishing strokes, a faint gleam of silver had appeared. He frowned mightily. Nikita, we must never forget that this is no soulless machine. I'm convinced it takes its form from what we make of it. It's a frozen idea. That's its true essence. And if you and I forget it, or look aside, it might just vanish. I tried to laugh him out of it, but Vlad was serious. He slept next to it both nights until we reached the rail spur. We followed the line to the station. Vlad telegraphed full particulars to Moscow, and I sent along a proud report to higher circles. We waited impatiently for four days. Finally, a train arrived. It contained some rocket drive technicians from the Baikonur Cosmodrome and two dozen uniformed KGB. Vlad and I were arrested. The Red Army boys were taken into custody by some Red Army brass. Even the Latvian who ran the station was arrested. We were kept incommunicado in a bunk car. Vlad remained cheerful, though. This is nothing, he said, drawing on his old jailbird's lore. When they really mean business, they take your shoelaces. These KGB are just protective custody. After all, you and I have the greatest secret in cosmic history. And we were treated well. We had red caviar, Crimean champagne, Kamchatkan king crab, blinis with sour cream. The drive had been loaded aboard a flat car and swathed down under many layers of canvas. The train pulled to a halt several times. The window shades on our car were kept lowered, but whenever we stopped, Vlad peeked out. He claimed the rocket specialists were adjusting the load. After the second day of travel, I had grave doubts about our whole situation. No one had interrogated us. For cosmic heroes, we were being badly neglected. I even had to beg ignominiously for DDT 
to kill the crab lice I had caught from Ballinthock. Compared to the mundane boredom of our train confinement, our glorious adventure began to seem absurd. How would we explain our strange decisions? How would we explain what had happened to Nina? Our confusion would surely make it look like we were hiding something. Instead of returning in triumph to Kaliningrad, our train headed south. We were bound for Baikonur Cosmodrome, where the rockets are launched. Actually, Baikonur is just the security name for the installation. The real town of Baikonur is 500 kilometers away. The true launch site is near the village of Turatom. And Turatom, worse luck, is even more of a hick town than Baikonur. This cheerless place lies on a high plain north of Afghanistan and east of the Aral Sea. It was dry and hot when we got there with a ceaseless, irritating wind. As they marched us out of the train, we saw engineers unloading the drive with derricks. Over the course of the trip, as the government rocket experts fiddled with it, the drive had expanded to fit their preconceptions. It had grown to the size of a whole flat car. It had become a maze of crooked hydraulics with great ridged black blast nozzles. It was even bound together with those ridiculous hoops. Vlad and I were hustled into our new quarters. A decontamination suite built in anticipation of the launch of our first cosmonauts. It was not bad for a jail. We probably would have gotten something worse, except that Vlad's head sometimes oozed a faint but definite blue glow, and that made them cautious. Our food came through sterilized slots in the wall. The door was like a bank vault. We were interrogated through windows of bulletproof glass via speakers and microphones. We soon discovered that our space drive had been classified at the very highest circles. It was not to be publicly referred to as an alien artifact. Officially, our space drive was a secret new design from Kaliningrad. Even the scientists already working on it at Chiratom had been told this and apparently believed it. The higher circles expected our drive to work miracles, but they were to be miracles of national Soviet science. No one was to know of our contact with cosmic powers. Vlad and I became part of a precedent struggle in higher circles. Red Army defense radars had spotted the launching of the yurt, and they wanted to grill us. Khrushchev's new rocket defense forces also wanted us. So did the Kaliningrad KGB. And of course, the Turatom technicians had a claim on us. They were planning to use our drive for a spectacular propaganda feat. We ended up in the hands of KGB's Paranormal Research Corps. Weeks grew into months as the state psychics grilled us. They held up Zenner cards from behind the glass and demanded that we guess circle, star, or cross. They gave us racks of radish seedlings through the food slots and wanted us to speak nicely to half of them and scold the other half. They wanted us to influence the roll of dice. 
and to make it interesting, they forced us to gamble for our vodka and cigarette rations. Naturally, we blew the lot and were left with nothing to smoke. We had no result from these investigations, except that Vlad once extruded a tiny bit of pale blue ectoplasm, and I turned out to be pretty good at reading colors while blindfolded with my fingertips. I peeked down the side of my nose. One of our interrogators was a scrawny, hardline Stalinist named Yezhov. He'd been a student of the biologist Lysenko and was convinced that Vlad and I could turn wheat into barley by forced evolution. Vlad finally blew up at this. You charlatans! He screamed into the microphone. Not one of you has even read Tchaikovsky. How can I speak to you? Where is the chief designer? I demand to be taken to Comrade Sergei Korolyov. He'd understand this. You won't get out of it that way, Yezhov yapped, angrily shaking his vial of wheat seeds. Your chief designer has had a heart attack. He's recovering in his dacha, and Khrushchev himself has ordered that he not be disturbed. Besides, do you think we're stupid enough to let people with alien powers into the heart of Moscow? So that's it, I shouted, wounded to the core at the thought of my beloved Moscow. You pimp! We've been holding out on you, that's all. I jabbed my hand dramatically at him from behind the glass. Tonight, when you're sleeping, my psychic aura will creep into your bed and squeeze your brain like this. I made a fist. Yezhov fled in terror. Silence fell. You shouldn't have done that, Vlad observed. I slumped into one of our futuristic aluminum chairs. I couldn't help it, I muttered. Vlad, the truth's out. It's permanent exile for us. We'll never see Moscow again. Tears filled my eyes. Vlad patted my shoulder sympathetically. It was a brave gesture, Nikita. I'm proud to call you my friend. You're the brave one, Vlad. But without you at my side, Nikita, you know, I'd have never dared to go into that valley alone. And if you hadn't drunk that piss first, well, I certainly never have. That's all in the past now, Vlad. My cheeks burned and I began sobbing. I should have ignored you when you were sitting under that piano at Leuda's. I should have left you in peace with your beatnik friends. Vlad, can you ever forgive me? It's nothing, Vlad said nobly, thumping my back. We've all been used. Even poor Chief Korolyov. They've worked him to a frazzle. Even in camp, he used to complain about his heart. Vlad shook his fist. Those fools. We bring them a magnificent drive from Tunguska, and they convince themselves it's a reaction engine from Kaliningrad. I burned with indignation. That's right. It was our discovery. We're heroes, but they treat us like enemies of the state. It's so unfair, so uncommunist. My voice rose. If we are enemies of the state, then what are we doing in here? Real enemies of the state live in Paris with silk suits and a girl on each arm and plenty of capitalist dollars in a secret Swiss bank. Vlad was philosophical. You can have all that. You know what I wanted? To see men on the moon. I just wanted to see men reach the moon and know I'd seen a great leap for all humanity. I wiped away tears. You're a dreamer, Vlad. The infinite is just a propaganda game. We'll never see daylight again. 
Don't give up hope, Vlad said stubbornly. At least we're not clearing trees in some labor camp where it's 40 below. Sooner or later, they'll launch some cosmonauts, and then they'll need this place for real. They'll have to spring us then. We didn't hear from the psychic corps again. We still got regular meals, and the occasional science magazine, reduced to tatters by some idiot censor who had decided Vlad and I were security risks. Once, we even got a charity package from, of all people, Liuda, who sent Vlad two cartons of cans. We made a little ceremony of smoking one each every day. Our glass decontamination booth fronted on an empty auditorium for journalists and debriefing teams. Too bad none of them ever showed up. Every third day, three cleaning women with mops and buckets scoured the auditorium floor. They always ignored us. Vlad and I used to speculate feverishly about their underwear. The psychics had given up, and no one else seemed interested. Somehow, we'd been lost in the files. We'd been covered up so thoroughly that we no longer existed. We were the ghosts' ghosts and the secrets' secrets, the best hidden people in the world. We seemed to have popped loose from time and space, sleeping later and later each day, until finally we lost a day completely and could never keep track again. We were down to our last pack of Kents when we had an unexpected visit. It was a Red Army general with two brass hat flunkies. We spotted him coming down the aisle from the auditorium's big double doors, and we hustled on our best shirts. The general was a harried-looking bald guy in his 50s. He turned on our speakers and looked down at his clipboard. Comrades, Zipkin and Globoff. Let me handle this, Vlad, I hissed quickly. I leaned into my mic. Yes, comrade general? My name's Needlin. I'm in charge of the launch. What launch, Vlad blurted. The Mars probe, of course, Needlin frowned. According to this, you were involved in the engine's design and construction? Oh, yes, I said thoroughly. Needlin turned a page. A special project with the chief designer. He spoke with respect. I'm no scientist, and I know you have important work in there, but could you spare time from your labors to lend us a hand? We could use your expertise. Vlad began to babble. Oh, let us watch the launch. You can shoot us later if you want, but let us see it for God's sake. Luckily, I had clamped my hand over Vlad's mic. I spoke quickly. We're at your service, General. Never mind Professor Zipkin. He's a bit distraught. One of the flunkies wheeled open our bank vault door. His nose wrinkled at the sudden reek of months of our airtight stench, but he said nothing. Vlad and I accompanied Needlin through the building. I could barely hold back from skipping and leaping, and Vlad's knees trembled so badly I was afraid he would faint. I wouldn't have disturbed your secret project, the general informed us, but Comrade Khrushchev delivers a speech at the United Nations tomorrow. He plans to announce that the Soviet Union has launched a probe to Mars. This launch must succeed today at all costs. We walked through steel double doors into the Turatom sunshine. Dust and grass had never smelled so good. We climbed into Needlin's open-top field car. 
You understand the stakes involved, Needlin said, sweating despite the crisp October breeze. There is a new American president. This Cuban situation, our success is crucial. We drove off rapidly across the bleak concrete expanse of the rocket field. Needlin shouted at us from the front seat. Intelligence says the Americans are redoubling their space efforts. We must do something unprecedented, something to crush their morale, something years ahead of its time, the first spacecraft sent to another planet. Wind poured through our long hair, our patchy beards. A new American president, Vlad muttered, big deal. As I soaked my lungs with fresh air, I realized how much Vlad and I stank. We looked and smelled like derelicts. Needlin was obviously desperate. We pulled up outside the sloped, fire-scorched wall of a concrete launch bunker. The Mars rocket towered on its pad, surrounded by four 20-story hinged gantries. Wisps of cloud poured down from the rocket's liquid oxygen ports. Dozens of technicians in white coats and hard hats clambered on the skeletal gantry ladders or shouted through bullhorns around the rocket's huge base. Well, comrades, Needlin said, as you can see, we have our best people at it. The countdown went smoothly. We called for ignition. And nothing, nothing at all. He pulled off his brimmed cap and wiped his balding scalp. We have a very narrow launch window. Within a matter of hours, we will have lost our best parameters, not to mention Comrade Khrushchev's speech. Vlad sniffed the air. Comrade General, have you fueled this craft with liquid paraffin? Naturally, Vlad's voice sank. These people are working on a rocket which misfired, and you haven't drained the fuel? Needlin drew himself up stiffly. That would take hours. I understand the risk. I'm not asking these people to face any danger I wouldn't face myself. You pompous ass, Vlad screeched. That's no earthling rocket. It only looks like one because you expect it to. It's not supposed to have fuel. Needlin stared in amazement. What? That's why it didn't take off, Vlad raved. It didn't want to kill us all. That drive is from outer space. You've turned it into a gigantic firebomb. You've gone mad. Comrade, get hold of yourself, Needlin shouted. We were all on the edge of panic. This blockhead's useless, Vlad snarled, grabbing my arm. We've got to get those people out of there, Nikita. It could take off any second. Everyone expected it to. We ran for the rocket shouting wildly, yelling anything that came into our heads. We had to get the technicians away. The Tunguska device had never known its own strength. It didn't know how frail we were. I stumbled and looked over my shoulder. Needlin's flunkies were just a dozen steps behind us. The ground crew saw us coming. They cried out in alarm. Panic spread like lightning. It wouldn't have happened if we hadn't all been Russians. A gloomy and sensitive people are always ready to believe the worst. And the worst in this case was obvious. Total disaster from a late ignition. They fled like maniacs, but they couldn't escape their expectations. Pale streamers of flame gushed from the engines. More streamers arched from the rocket's peak, the spikes of a rural fire. The gantries shattered like matchsticks, filling the air above us with wheeling black shrapnel. Vlad stumbled to the ground. 
somewhere ahead of us. I could hear barking. I hauled Vlad to his feet. Followed the dog, I bellowed over the roar. Into the focus of the ellipse where it's stable. Vlad stumbled after me, jabbering with rage. If only the Americans had gotten the drive, they would have put men on the moon. We dashed through a blinding rain of paraffin. The barking grew louder, and now I could see the eager dog of blue light showing us the way. The rocket was dissolving above us. The blast seared concrete under our feet, pitched and buckled like aspic. Before us, the rocket's great nozzles dissolved into flaming webs of spectral whiteness. Behind us, around us, the paraffin caught in a great flaming sea of deadly heat. I felt my flesh searing in the last instant, the instant when the inferno's shock wave caught us up like straws and flung us into the core of white light. I saw nothing but white for the longest time, seeing nothing, touching nothing. I floated in the timeless void. All the panic, the terror of the event, evaporated from me. All thoughts stopped. It was like death. Maybe it was a kind of death. I still don't know. And then somehow that perfect silence and oneness broke into pieces again. It shattered into millions of grainy atoms, a soundless, crawling blizzard like phantom hissing snow. I stared into the snow, seeing it swirling, resolving into something new with perfect ease, as if it were following the phase of my own dreams, a beautiful sheen, a white blur. The white blur of reflections on glass. I was standing in front of a glass window, a department store window. There were televisions behind the glass, the biggest televisions I had ever seen. Vlad was standing next to me. A woman was holding my arm, a pretty beatnik girl with a flowered silk blouse and a scandalous short skirt. She was staring raptly at the television. A crowd of well-dressed people filled the pavement around and behind us. I should have fainted then, but I felt fine. I just had a good lunch and my mouth tasted of a fine cigar. I blurted something in confusion, and the girl with Vlad said, shh, and suddenly everyone was cheering. Vlad grabbed me in a bear hug. I noticed then how fat we were. I don't know why, but it just struck me. Our suits were so well cut that they disguised it. We've done it, Vlad bellowed, the moon. All around us were people were chattering wildly in French. We were in Paris, and Americans were on the moon. Vlad and I had lost nine years and a moment, nine years in limbo, as the artifact flung us through time and space. To that moment, Vlad had longed so much to see. We were knit back into the world with many convincing details, paunches from years of decadent Western living, and apartments and the emigre quarter, full of fine suits and well-worn shoes, and even some pop science articles Vlad had written for the émigré magazines. And of course, our Swiss bank accounts. It was a disappointment to see the Americans steal our glory. But of course, the Americans would never have made it if we Russians hadn't shown them the way and supplied the vision. 
The artifact was very generous to the Americans. If it wasn't for the needle in disaster, which killed so many of our best technicians, we would surely have won. The West still believes that the needle in disaster of October 1960 was caused by the explosion of a conventional rocket. They did not even learn of the disaster until years after the fact. Even now, this terrible catastrophe is little known. The higher circles forged false statements of death for all concerned heart attacks, air crashes, and the like. Years passed before the coincidences of so many deaths became obvious. Sometimes I wonder if even the higher circles know the real truth. It's easy to imagine every document about Vlad and myself vanishing into the KGB shredders as soon as the disaster news spread. Where there is no history, there can be no blame. It's an old principle. Now the cosmos is stormed every day, but the rockets are nothing more than bread trucks. This is not surprising from Americans who will always try their best to turn the stars into dollars. But where is our memorial? We had the great dream of Tchaikovsky, right there in our hands. Vlad and I found it ourselves and brought it back from Siberia. We practically threw the infinite right there at their feet. If only the higher circles hadn't been so hasty, things would have been different. Vlad has always told me not to say anything now that we're safe and rich and officially dead. But it's just not fair. We deserve our historian. And what's a historian but a fancy kind of snitch? So I wrote this all down while Vlad wasn't looking. I couldn't help it. I just had to inform somebody. No one has ever known how Vlad Zipkin and I stormed the cosmos, except ourselves and the higher circles, and maybe some American top brass. And Laika? Yes, the artifact brought her to Paris, too. She still lives with us, which proves that all of this is true.